Hey gang, welcome to the Your Basket is Empty pod, a space where I sit down with agencies, brands, and original e-com thinkers to discuss their journey, practical advice, and how they're navigating the current digital landscape. Your Basket is Empty is also a bi-monthly industry newsletter that covers the most interesting e-com and direct consumer news, interviews with original e-com thinkers, a jobs board, an event listing section, and a playlist. Go check that out at yourbasketisempty.com. On this episode, I'm chatting with Tash Courtney-Smith, founder and CEO at Bolt Digital and D2C Live, founder of BizKids, investor, board advisor, author, and broadcaster. We discuss Tash's transition from journalism to agency world, opportunities for brands in the current economic climate, why getting back to basics is and always will be a good strategy, building and fostering a community, the challenges of sweat equity, and why one needs to take responsibility of their own personal brand. Before we get into it, this episode is supported by my friends at Recharge. Recharge has helped over 15,000 e-commerce merchants grow and retain their customer base through subscriptions, allowing the brands to grow their business by increasing lifetime value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. If you thought subscriptions were on the decline, listen to this. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. For everyone running an e-commerce store, customer retention has been at the forefront of your mind, and subscriptions are one of the best ways to meet your goals. Create seamless subscription experiences for your community and turn one-time shoppers into long-term customers with Recharge. Learn more at rechargepayments.com slash basket. Enjoy the episode. Tash, welcome to the pod. How are you and where are you? Hello, Tim. Lovely to be here. I am in my house in Queen's Park in uh, northwest London. Nice. Lovely area. Really nice area. Like it is park. a very nice area. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if uh, if, if people watching the, any of this on video can see the background. Can I just explain? This is a house that is waiting to be renovated. It's an <laughs> okay, old. Yeah. It's an old person's house uh, that I'm, <laughs> I've moved into, and it's due to, it has things like a pink bathroom suite. Nice. Um, yeah, and and a very old kitchen. Okay. Well, maybe we'll have to get you on for another podcast where you've done the renovation and you can show the world the uh, Maybe, the, but the it's amazing. amazing how quickly you get used to these things. Like yeah, that's I, true. I'm already used to it. I kind of yeah. I'm already like am I going to have my pink bathroom suite forever? <laughs> Who knows. <laughs> uh, so as we were discussing just before we jumped on, I usually like to mm. do a bit of a rewind. So maybe we'll start there and I'm Great. curious at the kind of outset, what why did you decide to move from journalism such kind of publishing into the world of e-com? Like what was the kind of decision making and maybe talk me through those first few years or months of Bolt? Yeah, sure. So for most of my kind of early career, I was a journalist. I was working on newspapers like the Daily Mail. And then I had a story brokering agency called Talk to the Press, which secured members of the public with deals for their story. And that was an agent, that business actually revolved around the sort of very early parts of performance marketing that we still do for our clients today. So uh, website conversion, email marketing, personal brand building, SEO and Google pay-per-click. This was around about 2007. Um, And I had that agency for about, six years and I sold it. And the reason I moved into e-commerce was because of the sale of that business. So mm. when you sell a business, it is, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're life-changing events, you know, it's, it's, but also there's some kind of changes. So I'd signed a no compete agreement. I was, mm-hmm. I'd agreed to not work in journalism for two years, not work in, um, not, not, not sort of sell or do business with any of the people who had been clients of Talk to the Press, which was basically the whole of the UK media. <laughs> uh, so I knew I was going to have to change career and I was quite happy to change career because I think 
That business was a real flagship business and still runs today within, say, the tabloid media with part of the media that I operated in, the daily newspapers, daytime television programs. And without it, I also wasn't sure what I was going to do. You know, you have something because of a business you own and operate. And in the instance of Talk to the Press, I thought, well, if Talk to the Press is sold, then what am I going to do? Am I going to just be a freelance journalist? And And that didn't really appeal because... I sort of thought, no, if I'm going to sell my business, I'm going to, A, I'm going to have some money, so that's going to be great. Mm -hmm. And B, Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to be on a no compete agreement. That was the condition of the sale. And C, I'm going to back myself, right? I'm going to use this as a point, a choice point in life through which to change and do something different. So that was how I then ended up going on a journey that brought me into the world of e-commerce and and Bolt Digital, which is obviously what we do today. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's fast forward then a little bit. And this is something we, again, we were chatting just before we jumped on, but like, what are you seeing at the coalface right now? You mentioned that your clients are doing okay. And I agree that we kind of have been expecting some sort of recessionary or beyond a technical recessionary environment for like 18 mm-hmm. months, maybe more, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem to be happening. Talk me through like what your clients are seeing and maybe why you think that is. Is, is it the sort of client that you're dealing with and they're in consumer? Yeah. What, what are you seeing? Yeah. So, I mean, at Bolt Digital, we primarily work with either doing the work or training in-house teams with uh, consumer goods brands, largely in health and beauty. Um, And I think, you know, there have been a lot of changes. If I think about the e-commerce landscape since 2017 to today, obviously, we all know all these things have changed, blah, blah, blah. Uh, You know, iOS updates, changing platforms, the rise of TikTok, you know, the list goes on and on. And separately, the consumers have changed. So there's been changes at both ends. So consumers have changed particularly more recently in terms of the much publicized cost of living crisis, you know, all that stuff last year with the price of petrol, and now it's the price of everything else. And, you know, and I think all of us in e-commerce started thinking, okay, so people are really going to be thinking about what they spend their money on and how's that going to affect campaigns. We just come through a series of platform changes which I feel we'd sort of got to the other side of. We're in a slightly more stable environment and then the consumer changes hits. So from the point of view of um, the brands that we work with in Bolt Digital, yeah, I mean, I'd always sort of warn brands kind of expect the worst, right? It's like there's going to be a cost of living crisis, there's going to be a recession. You know, we may see massive volatility in CPAs. We may see, you know, your revenue targets not being hit no matter what you do in terms of your technical expertise and execution. Um, in reality, that hasn't really happened. We're maintaining stable CPAs. Um, and, you know, one of our brands was on stage in our conference. This was the brand This Works, a very famous British heritage brand, yep. talking yep. about they literally, the CEO was on stage last week talking about how working with Bolt Digital during this period uh, and, and their re- uh, CPAs have re- been reduced by 40% by our team during this period of this backdrop of difficulties. Um, I mean, obviously, I could say, well, that's the excellence of work of my team and I. <laughs> of course, of course. I mean, that's the reason why, Tim. Yeah, it's 100% yeah. our incredible skills. I mean, to be honest, I, I think some of it does come down to the creative messaging, the way we drip feed micro moments, the use of the tabloid style messages that lots of brands don't use, but came from my background in mass media and we deploy on brands we work with today. We certainly see that messaging as a way to cut CPAs. I also think, um, you know, 
I mean, to be honest, if I'm speaking really briefly, I'm surprised. I'm always surprised that consumers are still spending at the level they are still spending mm-hmm. at. Um, and I don't know how much longer that will continue in quite the same way. I think for any agency, it helps if you work with bigger brands. They're more well yep. known. Yep. You know, there, were, there was a report that came out from Google last week about consumers being blinkered, like blinkered to new brands. Only 30% of consumers will even consider a new brand at the moment. And that's because they're trying to save costs, try to save money, and they don't want the temptation of new brands so with that in mind it probably helps be working with brands that are already known because we know that consumers are shutting their eyes to new brands but I think um, you know I think across the country you know there is obviously a recession and perhaps all of us are still waiting for it to little hit a little bit harder than it has done to date yeah it's so interesting you say that I've, I've read some interesting stuff recently that suggested which I kind of thought but it's I suppose becoming more obvious that uh, post-COVID savings were kind of propping up a lot of the economy. People saved a lot of money throughout that period. Yeah. And then consumers, that that has, you know, trailed on into, yeah, back into 2022 and now. But that is going to fade at some point. <laughs> and I suppose, yeah, hopefully, I don't know. I, I mean, just I think, think it's a volatile world. It's a volatile world. And when you look at consumers, there's various forces in them. So it's not just how much money have they got in their bank account, which may be getting less and less, particularly as, you know, AI takes all their jobs or whatever. <laughs> There's also general broader zeitgeisty trends that trends come through for um, kind of minimalism. If you look, I, I find it really interesting when I look across to America and see people like influencers like Gary Vaynerchuk really saying to people, don't spend money, you know, save your money, don't buy big ticket items now. Then you see people like Zuckerberg, you know, making huge redundancies and talking about efficiency. So there's mm-hmm. there's other trends moving through which are about kind of considered buying, um, efficiency, you know, being having stability. And there's also you know, trends that relate to mental mental health. So we know mental mm. health is getting is is getting is on the is getting worse and worse, and people are struggling with their mental health more and more. And financial stress is a real trigger for mental health issues. So I think there's a lot of forces at play in what ultimately a brand sees as revenue in their Shopify store. You know, if consumers are protecting their mental health a bit more, then they might be a bit more cautious when it comes to their spending. That's also trendy at the moment to be a bit more minimalist. And we've got big business leaders talking about efficiency and saving. Plus, you've got the very practical things of, oh gosh, this banana, this bunch of bananas cost twice more this week (laughs) than it did last year. So there's all these different forces at play. And I suppose then um, trying to weave through those different forces, what are you guys seeing as opportunities for the brands that you work with? Is it, I, I had someone on the podcast, um, uh, Matt from the brand Fussy, the um, uh, reusable deodorant, and oh, yeah. famously on um, uh, Dragon's Den. And he was suggesting that as a smaller brand, there is an opportunity that the uh, bigger brands are pulling back on their spend so you can go in and potentially get some stuff cheaply which is kind of slightly at odds at some of the stuff that you talked about. But I'm curious, like, what opportunities are you seeing from your portfolio's perspective? I think for our portfolio of brands, you know, there's always, I love it when people have their debates and and opinions on these things, because mine is only another opinion in a mix. So are big brands pulling back on ad spend? Yes, to some degree. Some of the brands we work with are quite big. And I don't know, they're pulling back. They're certainly not pushing out on it. So, you know, there's a there's a kind of, I'm not sure what forces, they're not being 
lavish with their ad spend, certainly not. And they're looking for more efficiency, which might mean there's more inventory available because there's less competition, which means startup brands can go out and buy media cheap, more cheaply for sure. For me, what we advise our brands to do is just maintain their focus. There's a lot of distraction. Okay. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of distraction. Mm. There's a lot of kind of, oh, you know, uh, what are we, we're going to have to master TikTok, we have to do this. And I'm like, just stay focused on consistency and doing the things that we know are core activities that drive revenue. So get your, like the creatives on Facebook are super, super powerful. So maintain focus on that for cut through. Maintain focus on a strong balance between Facebook, Google and organic. Maintain focus on your email marketing. And until you've got that stuff in order, stop worrying about all the noise and what everyone else is doing. Because even in a in a down market, you can pick up pace if you weren't doing your email marketing well and you start doing it well. So for me, it's always about like, let's don't get distracted by what everyone else is doing. Don't get distracted by all the, the news and all this terrible stuff. Stuff. It's like, let's just take these basic revenue driving activities that we know work because they they always had, they worked back in the days of Talk to Press 2007. They still work now. And let's get you executing on all of those really, really well before you start panicking and getting distracted and thinking, you know, overthinking it like, oh, everyone else is doing this so we can do that. It's like, cool. If you're doing your email marketing brilliantly, then do that. But if you're not doing your email marketing brilliantly, then let's get this core activity sorted and really rocking and rolling yeah it's so interesting because it feels like a back to basics is like a bit of a prudent strategy at the moment however i argue it feels like why has it never been not a prudent do you know what i mean it feels like it's a great you know i've always uh, run it as a prudent strategy sometimes i say to people call me old-fashioned but you know and literally i I use that phrase probably every week like call me old-fashioned but why don't we just focus on this call me old-fashioned but why don't we focus on not carrying like why don't we focus on a cost base that's reasonable for the brand the size of the brand you're at and not carrying kind of you know too many too too lots of brands have lots of uh, quite top heavy particularly in the bigger brands you know with directors except you know all these senior roles it's like let's just remember what drives success in a core e-commerce space and that is you know nimbleness efficiency execution across core areas and then get that done and then you can build in around it so yeah always been back to basics <laughs> I like it uh you, you mentioned it at the, at the top of the conversation there but I'd love to touch on it um you guys do quite a lot of events so yeah. I think you've just done a D2C live event was that last week yeah. I believe last yeah. week so, on Thursday okay I was going to suggest you can plug it because I think we originally had this in for another time but let's say it's, it's a well it's listen a D2C plug. live no because D2C live up? comes around twice a year there you go. twice Perfect. a year we can, we can plug we can plug uh, volume two but tell me about it what is it uh, who do you get there yeah feel free to plug away I'm curious yeah, great. So, I mean, D2C Live is a community that really started out of conversation with me and my business partner where we were like, look, we do know a few people. I'd started to notice that we knew a lot of people who didn't know each other, particularly in the digital bra- first brand space. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. I- I'm sure you know, Tim, a lot of the people who operate these digital first brands are quite similar. Like there's a lot of guys who are in their 20s and 30s, real performance marketers at heart uh, and really building these brands out of their bedrooms. So I started thinking, gosh, you know, I know a lot of these people, some of them are quite lonely. Some of, they were doing things like coming into our offices to hang out. And I was thinking, okay, they don't know each other. Like, should we just get some of them together and introduce them? Because it seems weird they don't know each other, but that's the yep. nature of an e-commerce brand and the way it, the digital first ones have been born and conceived. So we started D2C Live really with a view of just, you know, getting a few people together and helping a few people meet each other and kind of 
get to know each other. Um, and that started in November 2021. And it has grown into, I mean, we say, you know, it's it's the leading community in the UK of e-commerce brands, tech partners and, in, and venture capital funds and investors. And we truly believe it is. I mean, it's grown tremendously. In the, and so within our community, people Basically, we educate them through our content, our newsletters and social content. And then we have a series of real world events, which is our game, our D2C live conferences, which is twice a year, Game Changers monthly workshops, which brands, you know, come along to. Um, And then we do things like a summer social at Ascot. So we just had the conference. It was completely sold out. You know, I was actually really worrying about getting in trouble with the venue because I'm sure I had more people there than were technically allowed <laughs> into the venue. And um, yeah, completely sold out, jammed full, amazing speakers. Like, And I really then try and curate. And I think this is where the journalism, mass media background comes in. I really try and create, right, who are the brands who are doing things brilliantly? So for instance, we had a true classic speaking. They're a $200 million t-shirt brand, bootstrapped, always being profitable. Amazing ad operations and tech mentality towards tech. You know, like amazing mentality towards efficiency and nimbleness and not overthinking things. Um, And these are the brands that I like to come along and speak because I think many traditional retail brands can really learn from them. You know, retail brands, many of them are overstaffed. They move too slowly. They just are not nimble enough to kind of be as agile as they should be. We also had John Bailey talking. Now he's founded Revive Collagen, a hugely successful brand. John is a very elusive man, (laughs) literally. (laughs) impossible and i spent two years trying to get john to talk he finally talks nice congratulations so much people can learn from people like john bailey an incredible operator you know running a very very successful brand with a team of four um you know matt kelly from space goods who who you may know because i think a lot of you guys are friends with each other another amazing operator very uh, capable performance marketer doesn't need anyone like can just do it and I think to have these people on stage sharing how they operate with the people in the wider community is in- incredibly powerful so I'm really proud actually of how DTC Life has grown and the community it's become from that first idea. Yeah that's very cool I think uh, yeah live events are certainly back and kicking after a, a bit of a hiatus yeah. Yeah um, yeah. I want to switch gears slightly uh, you're a bit of a prolific investor. I don't know if you consider yourself an angel investor or an investor. I don't know how you label it, but I'm curious. Uh, I've done a little bit of angel investing myself, so maybe this is just some free advice for me. But um, what is your general investment thesis? Like, are you all about the founder? Do you need to see product market fit? I suppose it depends at what stage one is investing, of course. But like, how, how do you go about it? Is, or is it referrals? If someone else is in, you are like, oh, I trust them if they're in they make good decisions. I want to be a part of that. How do you go about it? I think it's a bit of all of those things, Tim, to be honest. I mean, we have um, an angel investment network called Bolt Angels, which um, has really been born out of what we've seen through Bolt Digital and and D2C Live and the investors we have in our network, whereby we realize that a lot of funds were using the community really for deal flow and for origination of brands. So because, you know, Lots of agencies always have access to quite a high volume of brands because through the Mm -hmm. agency sales process, you get to look under the hood of a lot of brands. We've really escalated that because of Game Changers workshops where we have, say, 15 brands come each month and we get to go under the hood of all of those and our conferences. So we have access to a very high level of brands with very high level of trust within those brands. They tend to share a lot of their pain points, problems, the conversations they're having with other investors. So from a point of view of deal flow and origination, that community 
has been has been really useful. And then in terms of the investments that I've made, yeah, I mean, I've, I was a seed stage investor in Triple Whale, um, which was actually not 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 something that I originated. It came through David Bell, who's the managing director of Bolt Angels, um, who spotted those guys. And for me, I just the people I trust to really execute are the people who can execute Mm -hmm. so the john baileys of revive collagen the matt kelly's of space goods the guys who run triple well and you only need to kind of and they're not performance marketing as such as analytics but you only need to get on a call with them if you are a sort of performance marketing type as i am to know that you're talking to someone else who is of the same type Mm -hmm. um and uh, so that's really so so partly it's like we do get a lot of early access to things and uh secondly it's like really then it's about the person and for me personally um you know you've got to have that those people who are really really able to execute who i classify as performance marketing types i mean they're not that's a broad brush name yeah. for a particular type of character who is an autodidact they will self-teach themselves everything incredibly clever a maths-based character will go in and get their hands dirty and roll their sleeves up and is able to kind of take on most areas of the business um and those are the people that would have most of my trust uh when making a decision like an investment decision and i'm curious then which i'm assuming it's probably come up and maybe you guys have engaged in it but a, you know a, a typical I, i've seen it a lot uh, both working in an agency and now consulting with agencies is the potential opportunity as the agency to forgo revenue in favor of some sort of equity deal do you think that's a good idea do you not think it's a good idea have you ever engaged in that or do you think which it sounds to me you've got a separate sort of business basically that that caters with that and then that, therefore you leave the agency to do its thing and it's all about you know revenue generation yeah i think it's i know agencies do this it's not something i've ever done i think they're different business models so an agency is selling resource um an agency would have to be either incredibly efficient or at a certain scale in order to do that sort of work for free and not sell the resource it has for money they're different business models um so i think it would complicate things if you were trying to do both because the whole time within an agency you're trying to manage resource and it, i mean it's like if a brand <laughs> just gives away a load of stock for free yeah, right yeah, it yeah. can be quite when a brand's a certain size it can do loads of sampling and give stuff everywhere you know right left and center let's hey let's put our product on the free on the cover of the sunday times and sell out two million units no small agency can do that no, no small brand can do that right they can't just give away two million units of stock or whatever it's going to be and it's similar in a in an agency you know agency agencies um you have you're driving revenue through managing and selling resource and it's really important to keep focused on that or you end up with an agency and and as as the agency grows i believe once it gets past that point it might be possible to kind of do sweat equity and certainly lots of agencies do it for me it's muddling for me they're different business models yeah i feel it's a romantic view of what is a yeah, like you say, a very different business model, and it can just get very, very messy very, very quickly. I think, and, and I think agencies also, you know, like the idea, but you know, the reality of it is something very different. Yeah, and and there's also something in the um, agency sort of client uh, sort of. Uh, I don't know what you'd call it, the natural relationship, right? The agency's there to do a job for a client. Clients have to and should try and get as much out of the agency as possible Mm -hmm. you know really Mm -hmm. drive the agency and some clients know how to do that well and others don't and it's like but from the client side you really should get as much out of the agency as possible 
the imbalance would be really wrong if, say, you know, the agency was a shareholder. It's like, okay, so now because you're a shareholder, you have to do 10x the scope because you're a shareholder. The agency is still carrying true costs, which it needs to recover and make profit from. So I think an agency would find itself in quite a complicated situation, you know, if it had made a, if it was almost doing an unlimited scope because it was a shareholder and with its shareholder hat on, it should do that. However, it also has a set of salaries to pay and needs to resource manage. I feel it puts itself at odds with itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. Um, I want to I wanna switch gears again ever so slightly, but um, I want to talk about personal branding. And I see you as a very authentic and good personal brander. Is that a word? Your personal brand is really good. And my general sense is that there's not so many good personal branding, not people that help them, although I feel that's maybe slightly dubious, but just the people themselves, I think sometimes the authenticity is just lacking. And to me, it's very, very obvious. And you do not have that. You've got authenticity in space. How do you think about personal branding? And is your kind of background in broadcast, like that must be a big like advantage? Would you say that? Okay, so before I answer that, can I just under because I I don't know how my personal brand lands, right? So it's really interesting to hear you say that because I think, and I'll come on to this in a second. As a person, when you start putting yourself out there, it's always slightly awkward. Right? I'm not blowing smoke sure. up your ass as well. Let's just put yeah. that out there. This is this so you is think a real, it's sounding yeah. authentically? Okay, I do. Yeah, in, in all honesty, I mean, I think that's how originally I came across you, and then we got introduced uh, via you know like mutual connections. But yeah, I. I yeah, I, I follow you. I think your content's very original and yeah, it works for me. So yeah, that's yeah. my feedback to you. Okay. So I think for me, you know, personal, uh, there's a lot of questions there. Like how do I, what's my approach to it? Does the, does the background in journalism help? So, and what's my view on personal branding? So for me, a personal brand has always been important. When I had talked to the press, um, you know, journalists, particularly tabloid journalists are notoriously not trusted by the public and even by each other. And I thought, you know, and I always thought, well, I'm a nice journalist. Like, you know, I don't want to be tarred with the same brush. So I'm just going to be open and be me and say, look, you know, I am Natasha. I am the person responsible for your story. You know, I did a lot of personal branding for talk to the press and really led with that. And that was very innovative at that time. That was 2008, 2009. It certainly helped stand us apart because you know the other story broker the, the options a member of the public has is to use a story brokering agency like a max clifford or a me or some others that sprung up around us or go directly to a publication like the sun the then the news of the world the mirror etc mm-hmm. it's quite hard dealing with news journalists just because they are busy frantic hectic people basically mm-hmm. so um I always felt that if I could be like the nice face of talk to the press, then I would obviously win in that situation, which did come to pass. I was like, I can't beat Max Clifford, who's incredibly famous on fame, but I can beat him on just being a nice woman, right? It's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you can, you, can, you can win in those things. It's always been very important to me. I then wrote a book about personal branding, actually in 2016, called Stand Out Online, which, in which I interviewed all sorts of people like Grant Cardone about how they've built their personal brand. Ironically, I then didn't deploy any of that wisdom in the book <laughs> on me. I just deployed it on a load of clients, which was so annoying because I wished I'd done it on me at the time. Um, and then and then personal branding has been, you know, I would say an on and off strategy for Bolt Digital. So it's interesting when people say, you know, my personal brand is good or I'm, partic- or, or I'm well known, because actually if I think about the practical reality of running a personal brand, it's been quite difficult mm-hmm. to get the production, to get the tone of voice right so that I'm happy with it and yeah. to have it flowing through. And for me not to feel like a complete and utter 
twit, which at various <laughs> points I have felt, particularly at times when I've tried to outsource my personal brand. And then you have different people writing copy for you. Mm, and I remember at one point in about 2018, we had a lot of stuff going out on LinkedIn and it was getting a load of engagement, like more engagement than I ever got from my own post. But I just felt so like it was so kind of clickbaity and shouty and, and I thought mm. my god I think Pete, and I remember once this guy who who was doing some upholstery work for me a really nice guy just like some local tradesperson he's like oh Jesus Christ you've always got an opinion I would think you, your life must be so stressful and I was thinking no this is too much right people think I've gone mad so you have to you have to let this stuff go out and in reality it's like and this is this is an outsourced personal brand so you've got freelancers helping with copy and content where my personal brand has worked best is when I've taken responsibility for it myself because you have to right the clue is in yep. the name it's a personal brand we actually did some work with D-Rock recently, which has been amazing. And he took us all the way through their production process, Gary Vaynerchuk's calendar. Do you know how involved Gary Vaynerchuk is in that personal brand? He literally sits on the loo and like, apparently like voice notes, like caption stuff. Wow. He is so involved because he has to be, because the personal brand has to be you. Otherwise, it seems like it's not you and people think you've gone yeah, a bit yeah, mad. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, the real game changer has come in just saying, do you know what? I'm going to stop expecting that this is something that somebody does for me. I'm going to take hundred percent responsibility for it. Yeah. I'm going to have some support on editing if I need it yeah, or whatever, yeah, yeah. but yeah. basically I am going to be responsible for it. And I am just going to be my, this is the other thing, other thing I did wrong in the past and this is hopefully useful for people because I was like the CEO, right? And I thought, well, as a CEO, I have to be a certain way and I have to try and say CEO-ish things and make myself seem like a business person. And, um, and, and lots of people were saying in my team, you know, oh, you, know, you should talk about this and you shouldn't have that view because people might think, you know, you're not, um, you know, you're not like down with the kids enough or you shouldn't have that view and don't say it like this. And it was all this incoming information and viewpoints like, be more like a CEO, do say this, don't say that. And I think that led to an, I'm, I'm glad it somehow passed your nose as authentic because for me, it felt, it felt really painful. Um, and actually just kind of, you know, putting my blinkers on and just thinking, no, you know what? I just am only, can only be who I actually am. I will take responsibility for it. If I say something that people don't like or isn't enough CEO-ish or isn't this, that, then it's just going to have to be tough luck because what, because that's the only way I believe in the power of a personal brand very, very strongly. I wrote a book about it. I want to grow my personal brand for sure. You know, you asked about a background in broadcasting and all that sort of stuff. It definitely helps, right? It helps you analyze news stories. It helps you come up with terms of phrases. Of course, I've written thousands of articles for the Daily Mail. There's no way it could not help. But outside of that, it's like I just have to put my, like literally blinkers over my eyes and ears and get on with it by myself and ignore everybody else and just hope for the best. And that's really the approach I've taken in the last sort of, I don't know, six months. And I do feel that the personal brand has flowed more easily. It's had better reception. I, you know, it was testament to it really. I think that we had a massive queue waiting to get into the conference. Nice. So my advice is it's very painful doing personal brand <laughs> stuff. It's painful because you have to put it out there. So you have to, at times you do end up looking like a dick at certain times. It's incredibly painful to have incoming information and views on your personal brand. Yeah. Um, and 
outsourcing it or believing that someone else can do it for you is not is not the route you just have to be responsible for it yourself and then you just have to be yourself and I know that sounds very cliched it's ironic it's what people said all along and it turns out it's actually true I should have just <laughs> listened to them in the start um it would be remiss of us in what May 2023 not to mention AI so we're going to touch oh, on yeah. it very, very briefly, very, very briefly. Um, but I picked up something the other day via your personal branding output. And you mentioned that uh, we should wake up and smell the AI. So tell me more about your approach to it. What do you generally think? Well, I just can't believe I, mean, I know the post you're talking about and I can't believe people aren't more hysterical about it. Uh, you know, if I was a lot of the British public, I'd be running around like a lunatic. Obviously, we don't want people to start running around no, like lunatics. Not, not yet. Yeah. Not yeah. yet. No, I mean, I am very into AI as you'll pick up through my personal brand content. I have been determined to use it and get on top of it and deploy it throughout all the output we do. There's a lot of things that I do now that have been AI's been an instrumental part of. However, I, you know, also think that, you know, I often think about, and Tim, you've heard me banging on about this, like, what is this? The country we know and live in has been created in a certain way. And all of that changes if if things change, the underpinning things. So I think, God, you know, it does pose real uh, threats of change ahead for everything we know mm-hmm. and um, do and enjoy. And it, it seems impossible to me that it won't lead to definitely in the short term job losses, mass job losses, you know. I'm as a, as a as a CEO. I'm always happy and excited when I realise I can reduce costs through using yeah. certain tools, automation or AI. But as a per, you know, as someone who lives in the country, you want people to be employed. You want there to be plenty of jobs. So when I said wake up and smell the AI, I just I'm just surprised that people don't en masse seem to be really realizing, oh my God, this is massive. This is really, really massive. I mean, interestingly, one of, you know, the other thing that worries me is all these people who are instrumental in its development are all regretting it. So, you (laughs) know, Elon Musk, yeah, yeah, they're all leaving it. And then some guy from Google, I was literally recording a TikTok about it. He's left Google. He was instrumental in AI. He's apparently known the godfather AI, but he's left Google because he's worried about AI. And I'm thinking, okay, not being funny, didn't the guy who invented the t- Titanic stay on it when it went down? You don't jump it. on, I hope right? so. <laughs> he did. So. I'm sure he did. I was going to Google it. I'm sure he did. I'm sure the lead designer of the Titanic stayed on it. But you don't like, it's like, oh, great. Thanks a lot, mate. You're just going to jump off and yeah. leave us to the repercussions. Now, I think it's worrying. I think it's really, really worrying. It's going to spell massive change. And I'm surprised. Yeah, I'm surprised people aren't stressing out more about it. Yeah, it definitely feels as an element of sleepwalking going on. And I certainly feel that, I mean, there's a lot of talk around how governments can kind of like get involved. But I suppose my general sense is that they fail to understand tech as it is now, which in the grand scheme of things is pretty primitive. Like social media is not that difficult to understand and and they can't get their head around that. So, But then I suppose maybe there's an opportunity for them to leapfrog and use it as an opportunity to get ahead of this because it is so new. Whereas some of the, you know, congressional stuff in the States around Facebook and Google and and TikTok, et cetera, it's kind of in in the rear view vision mirror, right? It's it's been and done and they're trying to catch up. So, but yeah, it does feel a bit like that. There's this kind of like wonder to it. And then there's this like uh, kind of just general fear and it could be very scary. It's a very, very odd time. Um, I know. I mean, I remember I went to Downing Street in, God knows when, about 2017 to talk to 
the minister of small business. It was, I think it was actually Matt Hancock at the time. Oh, really? I obviously wow, wasn't famous. <laughs> um, and, and that was about, you know, what, what were they going to do about the fact that Facebook and Instagram were so instrumental in the success of small business? How were they going to educate the public about this and educate small business owners and help them? And, and even then it was a bit like, guys, you are well behind the curve here. Like this is, <laughs> you know, that you've got millions of small businesses using these platforms and like, this is kind of, you're just thinking about this now uh, yeah. and probably the same thing will happen with AI. Uh, final question what would you be doing if you weren't running Bolt or any of the other ventures that you've got going on oh I'd be coming up with a new venture somewhere I have come to realise that sadly for me not for anyone else sadly for me I'm not a person who kind of doesn't um, who sort of I don't know I'm always I feel like I'm always looking for opportunities and creating things and I'd be pretty unsnobby about what I was doing as well like I always think you know, you could drop me in any corner of the world and I would set something up. I wouldn't nice. care if it was a car wash, a fruit stall, like you, and, and that's a great feeling, right? You always know that no matter where you go, you're going to find something to do. So I would find something to do that I would believe was ultimately something that was going to, at, at some point, drive, you know, money, positivity, value, you know, success. Uh, helping inspire people so I would busy myself with something else nice okay AI powered car washes maybe that's a business AI powered car Car washes yeah there we go Uh, I think that's a good way to end the podcast Tash thank you so much for joining me well thank you very much for having me Tim There you go, folks. Thank you so much for joining me. Before we go, a quick word from my sponsor, Recharge, the leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants launch and scale subscription offerings. Discover how your business can harness the power of recurring revenue and seamless subscription commerce at rechargepayments.com slash basket. Before we go, if you like the pod, please like, subscribe, download, and tell all your mates to do exactly the same. I'll see you next time.